listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew McClure. I, I know that our family got introduced last week as the new church planting family uh, in Richmond Hills. So um, we're so excited to be here. And before we jump into today's passage, I, I really wanted to say thank you. On behalf of our family, um, thanks to the church, the staff, the elder team for um, really demonstrating the values of this church, which is community. Um, we arrived a week ago, which, you know, four kids under the age of seven, a week before Christmas, so it's a little chaotic, a little hard, can be difficult. But man, we were welcomed by so many people who uh, put our kitchen together and put our furniture together and began to unboxing stuff for us so that our kids could, could really feel like home and, and begin to experience Christmas in our new home. So we're thankful. Uh, and grateful. Unfortunately, though, when we got introduced last week, one of the biggest regrets I had was that I just didn't have my phone on me. I didn't get to get a lot of your contact information. So before we jump into today's passage, um, I wanted you to have my email so that if you're interested in in joining us as part of the church plant, maybe you're interested in hearing a little bit more, we want to spend the next couple of months really connecting with you and, and casting that vision, sharing our heart for um, the church. So our, our, my email is amcclure at cbcsavannah.com. Um, shoot me an email and hopefully we can connect over the next couple months. All right, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter three. And as you turn there, I'm gonna kind of set us up a little bit in our passage. Um, I, I know that you don't know me, so I'm gonna tell you two things about myself. Of course, there may be a few more, but there's two things that, that are pertinent to today's passage. The first is that over, um, let's see, eight out of the last 10 years, our family has served as cross-cultural missionaries um, in the 1040 window. Um, the second thing you need to know is I love all things sport. Uh, I, I love playing sports. I love competing. I'm, my wife would probably amen this. I'm probably the most competitive person you'll ever meet. Love all things sport. Love reading sports, following sports, playing sports, you name it. I love sports. But when we moved overseas to our first assignment in January of 2013, all the sports that, that fueled me and that I found joy in playing just weren't available anymore. So the country we moved to just didn't have the sports that, that I was most familiar with. So my wife, you know, and, and probably for the sake of our marriage, knew that I have got to have an outlet somewhere. Um, so she encouraged me to take up running. So I did. I, I started running a little bit, started putting in a few miles, and, and y'all, like, it was awful. Uh, um, like, how do you know if you win or lose? There's no, you know, purpose for me. And, um, but she encouraged me to stick with it. And she knew that I needed something to train for. I needed something to get ready for. So she signed me up for my first half marathon. And I'll be honest with you, it helped. It provided a little bit of purpose to that running and, and gave me something to get ready for, to prepare for, to train for. So I took that seriously. I started logging some miles. I started testing different clothing items, hydration, fueling. I started adding some tempo runs. And slowly I began to get ready for this race, or, or at least that's what I thought. Um, so when June came around, the, the race happened, and um, I was living in the Sahara Desert, desert reason, you know, in June, and um, racing in my first half marathon. But we got to the venue a little bit late because, you know, all the directions are in a different language. We didn't really know where we were going. Um, ended up getting there, but I left my good running socks. So I just, you know, wore basic crew socks. Um, didn't bring any bottled water, you know, because for heaven's sake, I paid to be here, which is baffling. Um, I paid to run this race thinking they would have bottled water for me. They didn't. So I ended up having a drink, you know, just the tap water that the, the locals are handing out there on the street. Um, I'd been training and getting ready for this race at an eight to eight and a half minute mile pace, you know, but this is, this is race day. 
you know, and I had no idea how fast I was running until I realized, you know, mile 10 that I'm running at about seven, seven and a half minute mile pace. Um, long story short, y'all, the, the day was a disaster. Um, I thought that I was ready, learned very quickly. I, I wasn't. I finished the race, um, had a little st- stomach problems because you don't drink tap water in, in that country. Um, I was chafed, my feet were blistered, um, but but really, more than anything, I was over it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, done, I'm done with running. And I think it was just a couple days later, I, I was reading in the Bible, Proverbs 28.1, which says, the wicked flee when no one chases them. And I realized at that moment, <laughs> this is God's mandate for me. Running is over. And, and obviously, that's a joke. My wife's a real runner. She runs marathons, but, um, so I don't hate running that much. But um, yeah, but I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, so... Well, let's, let's turn then to Matthew chapter three. And what we're gonna see in Matthew chapter three is that just as I was trying to prepare for race day or even convincing myself I was prepared, what I began to realize is I wasn't. I wasn't prepared, I wasn't ready. And what we're gonna see in Matthew chapter three is that John the Baptist came to prepare people for Christ, to prepare people to follow him, to live for him. And just as God's word is living and active today, his message still reigns today, that it's still in essence to try to get us prepared to live for Jesus and to follow Jesus. And one of my greatest fears is that we have convinced ourselves we're ready, but in reality, we, we may not be. So I hope that the word of God speaks today in order for us to be ready to live for Christ. So Matthew chapter three, verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So let's start here. In those days is how Matthew chapter three opens. So it begs the question, What days is Matthew referencing? With the end of chapter two to the beginning of chapter three, we we have approximately a 30-year span, a, a gap of 30 years. And at the end of chapter two, if you remember from last week, Jesus returns to Nazareth with his Uh, father and mother, Mary and Joseph. And Luke, the gospel of Luke tells us that he's growing in wisdom and stature with both God and man. He's growing. He hasn't begun his ministry. The inauguration of his ministry hasn't occurred yet. And in those days, before Jesus begins his ministry, John the Baptist came. And over the last four weeks, we've looked at the miraculous birth of Christ, and we've looked at the fact that that Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience, is working extremely hard to show his audience that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of all the, the Messiah prophecies. And as we've looked at that over the last four weeks, what we see in Matthew chapter three is, is a similar phenomenon. We have a miraculous birth in that of John the Baptist, and we have a ministry that has been foretold in the Old Testament prophets. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but let me kind of paint a picture of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter one, we see that uh, John's mother, Elizabeth, was, was barren, unable to bear children. But then a angel by the name of Gabriel approaches his father Zechariah and says your prayers have been heard you're going to have a son and then he begins to describe that son and says he will be great and powerful before the Lord and then I'm going to put this verse on the screen here in verse 16 of 17 the gospel of Luke it says and he will go before the Messiah and the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared to make ready 
This, this child will be great before the Lord. He'll go in the spirit and the power of Elijah and his job is to prepare people for the coming of Christ. We saw that from the angel Gabriel. We saw that in the gospels. But what's really interesting is John the Baptist and specifically his ministry was foretold even 400 years before this moment. In the prophet Malachi, which is the last book in our Old Testament, in verse, uh, chapter three, verse one, we see this scripture, and we're gonna put this on the screen as well. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And I'll stop there, because what I want us to see here is this prophesied ministry of someone who's coming, a messenger who's coming, to prepare the way before the Messiah, who would come before Christ. In Malachi 4, verses five through six, we see the same thing. Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts. Again, I just want us to see the same thing. And it's the same thing in in Isaiah that Matthew actually quotes in verse three. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. So what I want us to see here is that John the Baptist was foretold 400 years earlier that he would be the messenger, the one that they were all waiting for who would come before the inauguration of the Christ's ministry. And his job was to prepare the way, to make ready, to get us ready for that race day. So the question we wanna spend the next 25 minutes or so unpacking is how? How did he make people ready? And how, through the living and abiding word of God, is he still today making us ready for a people for Christ. The first thing I see here in verse one is that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. The way that he made people ready is through his preaching. That word in the Greek is the word herald. A herald in antiquity would go before the king. So if the king is leaving his kingdom and he's moving through different villages or different cities, a herald would go before him and begin to announce his coming. Come on out, come on out. The king is coming, the king is here And that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying, hey, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing the Christ is coming. But a herald would also prepare the way. If there were uh, potholes in the streets, the king would need those uh, replaced, need them fixed, because he needs to be able to move efficiently and effectively. And John the Baptist came to prepare the way through his preaching. But what's important for us this morning is to look at his message. What did he preach? This is where we're all gonna feel so good. Repent, repent. That was his message. He preached a message of repentance. Now, the word repentance or repent has a bad rap in our Christianity today. And what I want us to see is that actually is a really good thing. To repent means to turn. It means to change. It's more than changing one's mind, it's changing one's motivations. It's moving away from something and towards something else. And John's saying, for us to be a people ready for Christ, we've gotta change. We have to turn from some things and turn toward some other things. Over the last 10 years, I mentioned that my wife and I have been serving cross-cultural and part of that job was to train young adults, 18 to 28 year olds, on how to be missionaries to unreached peoples. They would come live with us in this country of origin and they would stay with us for about three months. And every semester I would ask them, uh, within their first week of being with us, I would ask them a simple question. What is the gospel? If you're here to be a missionary, to be a herald, to be a preacher, someone who's proclaiming the life of Christ, what's that message? What is the good news of the gospel? And y'all, these students are the cream of the crop. 
I mean, they are zealous to put a dent in the kingdom of darkness. And I would be flabbergasted by their response, how quick they would respond with the message of the gospel. And they would say something you know, like this, that God created us to be in relationship with himself. But because of our sin, we have broken that relationship with him. But in his mercy, he sent Jesus to die for our sins, pay the punishment for our sins, so that we can be restored back to relationship with God. I mean, 10 seconds with confidence, they just share the gospel. And my jaw is just on the floor just amazed at the spiritual maturity of these students. But it wouldn't take long as I'm starting to process going, wait, 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 they're missing something. We're missing a key element of the gospel. Repent. That we have to respond to that message. When the message of the gospel sinks into our hearts, things change, right? There's a change that occurs. And we're missing that message in our comfort-seeking Christianity today. It's a message of repentance, now, I want to be clear, I, I, I don't intend to be judgmental or critical, especially of the church of God. I, I've lived all over the world, and the church, regardless of region, ethnicity, language, it doesn't matter. It has its blemishes. It's got its issues. It's just a bunch of people, just like us, who are sinners in need of God's grace. So I don't intend to be critical. Please hear me say that. But over the last 10 years, every time we would come into America, I would start to grow more and more concerned with the church in the West. And this is why. It seems that the church in the West has garnered a massive following, and, I, and I'm wor- wonder, I'm curious, I'm suspicious, if that following is because of a good um, PR strategy or, or a good brand or a message that attracts the masses, that makes us feel good, it makes us feel comfortable, or if it's a following that's, that's garnered out of preachers and, and pastors and church people spending time in the cloud like Moses or in the fields like David. Or are they relying on a ministry built in the arm of our own flesh? It, it concerns me. From prosperity theology to pop psychology to using a pulpit like this to promote self-esteem, that may be a message that makes us feel good and want us to attract towards that. But John the Baptist would stand in contrast to that and say, no, 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 we need the message of repentance. We need the message of change. And in verse five, what's crazy is that the masses were actually flocking to John's message. They were coming from all the wilderness of Judea, around the Jordan, they were coming out to him and they were demonstrating their need for repentance or their desire for repentance in two ways. Look with me at the end of verse six. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan and they were confessing their sins. I just wanna be clear really quickly. We are not saved by baptism. Even though John says in verse 11, I baptize unto repentance, he is not saying, hey, if you're baptized, you're good. You're saved, you're justified. If you're baptized, just just get in the water, check it off and everything's fine. Baptism is just faith in actions. It's It's a symbolic act that's outwardly demonstrating what we're already believing. And and that's two things. A, I'm dirty. My soul is dirty. I'm in sin. I need to be cleansed. And B, I need to die to that way of living in order to change, in order to turn living a life of repentance towards a new way of life, right? That's what baptism is. It's demonstrating what we're already believing. But notice too, they were also confessing their sins. Confession is the first act in repentance. It's acknowledging that I am in sin. But what strikes me about this passage is they weren't just acknowledging their sinners. They're not just saying, hey, I've fallen short of the glory of God and I'm in need of repentance, although that would be great. You know, I wouldn't reject anybody who's acknowledging that, but they're confessing their sins, specific, plural. 
They are aware of where they are fallen short of God's glory, and they're coming to confess those things. Confession is a free admission of sin. But we don't just need to confess, we need to change. We need to repent, we need to turn in order to be a people made ready to live for Christ. So, first thing I see in the first six verses here is that we are a people prepared as we repent. But read with me in verse seven. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we see at the end of verse five and six that many people were flocking to him, but we also have these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who maybe weren't heeding this message of repentance. Maybe they're not coming to John to say, yeah, I'm aware that I have sin and I need to repent. Instead, these two people were probably wanting to resist this message a little bit. And let me tell you a little bit why. The Pharisees viewed themselves as the guardians of the Old Testament law. In fact, they were so zealous for the Old Testament law, they would place additional practices upon their lives in order to really keep them away from breaking the law so they could live above reproach. If you remember, Paul was of the order of the Pharisees. In Philippians chapter three, he said, hey, regarding the Old Testament law, I lived blamelessly. Can I get an amen? Anybody else? You know, what a statement. But that's where the Pharisees stake to their claim. That's where they found their pride. That's where they found their righteousness, their salvation, and the fact that I don't need repentance because regarding the law, I've lived blamelessly. So imagine then what's going on in their hearts when this Elijah type figure wearing his camel hair and a leather belt begins to look at them and say, repent. You are in need of repentance. You are in sin. And don't try to run away from that fact. And he calls them a brood of vipers. You snakes, don't slither out of this. Repent, heed this message. But the Pharisees presumed that because of their strict adherence to the law, they were not in need of repentance. But let's look at the Sadducees. What's interesting is in antiquity, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they didn't get along very much. They had some pretty heated disagreements between themselves. In fact, in Acts 23, when Paul's preaching, they're arguing with one another about their disagreements of the resurrection from the dead. But the old adage rings true here, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the Sadducees come together, but they're, they're not staking their claim on their own self-righteousness. No, instead, they're staking their claim on their family connections. They have a long line of faithfulness in their family. They're of the tribe of Levi who uh, create their, de- their, their descendancy from uh, the line of Zadok. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Zadok was the high priest in the days of King David. They're presuming they're not in need of repentance because look at our family history. Look at this long line of faithfulness. Look at who we come from. We are Jews of Jews, Levites, holy of the high priestly family. We don't need repentance. What does John say to them in verse nine? Hey, don't presume. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. They're presuming. The truth here is that we're all sinners. That we're all fallen short of God's standard. And by nature, Ephesians tells us we are children of God's wrath. We're in need of repentance. But some, instead of flocking to John's message, and even today, instead of heeding the message of repentance, some will justify 
They'll presume that, that we're good, right? This is part of our sin nature. Let, let me prove my point. How many of you are parents? I have four children under the age of seven. I see this all the time. I can be three feet from two of my children. One will throat punch the other. And when I give them you know, the look, like the, the look, he will immediately justify and say, well, he looked at me funny. As, as if saying, I don't need a consequence. He does, you know? We do this. We, we don't heed our need for repentance. Instead, we justify. But we, we do this as adults too, don't we? Let me, let me prove my point by asking a simple question. Why do we gossip? Sorry, we call it venting here in the church, you know? <laughs> Why do we do that? Why do we talk negatively about others? It's because psychologically, when we can highlight a negative quality about somebody else, what's it make you feel? Just a little bit better, right? A little more self-righteous, as if to say, I don't really need to change. I don't need, but, th- but they do. Look at those negative qualities about themselves. We're presuming. We're presuming that we're not in need of repentance. And I think with John the Baptist, we, we should be careful not to presume now, many of you won't say, hey, I'm, I'm a strict adherer of the law. I don't need repentance, right? I think we can all acknowledge that we've made some mistakes. Many of you won't come up to me afterwards and say, actually, I am of the tribe of Levi, right? But we, we still do this. We're still as guilty of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We still justify. I would be a, a, a really rich man if I had a dollar for every time I had someone come up to me and say, well, uh, I'm, I was born a Christian, I was raised in the church. My family's Christians. When I was little, I was baptized. It's the same communication. It's the same fact that I, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm in because of something, a familial connection or because of something else. Don't presume. One of my greatest fears is that people all across this nation this morning think that they're saved when in reality they're presuming and maybe still separated from God. Walking an aisle, praying a prayer, being baptized, those are not guarantors of our faith. It's only by looking at Christ, so don't presume. So instead, what should we do? And this is point two, don't presume, examine. Examine your lives. John would say it in verse eight like this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Is your life marked by a change through your faith in Christ? Y'all, I don't want you to unnecessarily doubt your salvation. That's not my intent here. But in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. It would be wise of us to examine our lives to see if we actually are bearing the fruit in keeping with repentance. Is our life marked by a change? From an apple tree, we expect what? Apples. From an orange tree, you expect oranges. From a Christian, we expect Christ. Are we growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those things that we are moving towards, turning towards? Now, does this mean then that I must be patient 100% of the time? Guys, I have four kids under the age of seven. We're gonna drive probably four and a half to five hours on Tuesday to celebrate Christmas. By the time I get off I-16, patience is gonna be prayed for. You know, we're gonna be petitioning the Lord for more and more patience. But no, that's not what what we're meaning. We're not meaning that we're 100% sinless. 
But what it means is when I'm aware and examining my life and see impatience in my life, I'm repentant. I'm confessing that sin. I'm inviting God's power to change me. I don't want to be impatient. I want to continue to be more patient, right? It's an examining of our lives. So are we a people made ready? Are we a people who are repenting? Are we a people who are presuming? Or are we people who are examining, bear fruit in keeping with repentance? John came to make a people ready. And what we're gonna see starting in verse 11 is that ultimately, and this is the most important point, we are a people made ready as we look to Jesus. Let's read in verse 11. It says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he consented. And when Jesus baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. John wants us to see Jesus. He's saying, you're coming to me and I'm baptizing you unto repentance, but he who is coming after me, he's mightier than me. He's more powerful than me. There's an old rabbinical saying that says, any disciple should do for their teacher what a slave would do for their master, except for one. There's one too degrading. That's, that's loosening the sandals of someone. John says, I'm not just gonna loosen them. I'm, I'm too unworthy to carry them. This person is so much greater than me. I want you to see him. I want you to look to him. And not only is he greater than me, but his baptism is different than mine. It's more distinct than mine, and it is more powerful than mine. And let me prove my point. He's saying that I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming, the anointed one, the Christ, he's gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what do we mean by that? Many would argue that that is an allusion to any eternal damnation or some form of a consequence. And we see some pictures of that, especially at the end of verse 12. There will be a gathering of the saints, and there will be a consequence for those who are not. But I don't believe that John's saying that the baptism of the Spirit and the fire is a negative thing. I believe it's a very good thing. In Acts 1, when Jesus comes and tells his disciples that I want you to tarry in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem, for the Spirit of power will come upon you. You will will be baptized by the Spirit of power. I believe the baptism of his Spirit here is one of power. So let me ask a question. How many of you are actually repentant? aware of sin in your life, confessing sin in your life, not wanting to sin anymore, but to live a life of righteousness. How many of you could say yes to that, but could also say yes to this? I just lack the power to change. I just can't. If that's you this morning, I just wanna welcome you to humanity. (laughs) That's all of us. It's every one of us. The apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter seven. He says, the things that I should be doing, I can't. The things that I should not be doing, I keep doing. And he says, there's a law inside of me. There's a power in me and it's, a, it's called sin and I'm enslaved to it. 
Then he asked this rhetorical question at the end of chapter seven where he says, who can deliver me? Who can save me from this? And in verse 25, we're gonna put this on the screen, says this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, we need his baptism. We need his spirit. Jesus, whose name means the one to save people from their sins, not only made atonement for our sin, but is willing to give you his spirit, the only spirit powerful enough to live sinlessly so that we can be ready to live for him. It's also a baptism with fire. On the day of Pentecost, as the apostles had tarried and they waited and the spirit of power came upon them, how did it appear? Tongues of fire, like fire, it looked like fire. Now fire burns, of course, but it, but it also purifies. It cleanses. Here, here's my point. We, we cannot be Christians without having a changed life, without looking like Christ. The bad news though, we're powerless to change in our own strength. It's the spirit of God that indwells us through faith in Christ that gives us, that guarantees us the power to change, the power to actually demonstrate repentance. John came to make us ready, told us to look to Jesus, to look to the one whose baptism is coming with the spirit and with fire. Verse 13, Jesus came. As John was saying, hey, he's coming. One is coming after me, he came. He came to the River Jordan and he came with a purpose. What was that purpose? To be baptized. And what's incredibly interesting to me is is John's objection, right? Look with me in verse 14. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me? Church, we need to unpack this. This is so important for us to see. John's baptism was a baptism unto what? Repentance. It was an acknowledgement that I'm dirty, that I'm a sinner, and that I need to be cleansed or washed by that water. He looked at Jesus and said, you don't need it. You don't need to be baptized by me. You don't need this baptism because you're sinless. You're not dirty, but I need yours. (laughs) I need you to baptize me. You don't need this baptism. But then Jesus makes this profound statement in verse 15, and I want us to look there. So Jesus answered him, I know, (laughs) I get it. I understand your objection. Let it be so now though. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to say, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness? If some scriptures are popping in your head, such as Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament law and prophets, you may think maybe there's a law or prophecy somewhere in the Old Testament that that shares with us that we need to be baptized. There's not. There's no such requirement for that. So what is he saying then that this is fulfillment of all righteousness? I believe the key to interpreting this is found in how Jesus viewed himself. Throughout the prophet Isaiah, there's a handful of deep messianic prophecies about a servant that would come to suffer. And there's none more clear than Isaiah 53. If you've never read Isaiah 53, I would encourage you to read that today. But this is from verse 11, and this is how Jesus viewed himself. He said, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he will bear their iniquities. He will bear their sins. Stay with me. When Jesus got into the river Jordan to be baptized by John, he's not saying I'm a sinner in need of repentance. He's saying you are. 
All of you are. And you lack the power to actually change. You need someone to carry your sins away. So although I don't need to be cleansed, you all do. And I'm going to take humanity upon myself. I'm going to identify myself with all of mankind. And I'm going to die for you and carry your sins so that you can actually be free to change. Here in the Jordan River is Emmanuel. God coming to be with us, showing his solidarity with us, showing the purpose of his advent, his arrival, to identify himself with those he came to rescue. So Jesus was baptized. And immediately the spirit of God descends upon him, which is Isaiah 42, one, this is my servant. I delight in him. I put my spirit on him and he will save the nations put my spirit upon him to save the nations. And then a voice begins to boom at his baptism saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What we have here at the end of chapter three is all three members of the Trinity. God the son in human form is joined by God the spirit in dove-like form while the voice of God the father calls down from heaven, spoken to fully confirm that this is him. This is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, my son, And all who look to him, cling to him, believe in him, will not die, but have eternal life through faith in his name. John came to make us ready by saying, look at him. Look to Jesus. Jesus is fully and divinely qualified to get in that water and to take our sins upon himself. So as we close this morning, I think it's just just apt for us to ask, are we ready are, are we prepared to live for him? Are we living a life of repentance? Are we presuming that we don't need it? Or are we identifying ourselves as those who are examining, looking inward, knowing that we do? But, but more than anything, are we looking to him and living to him? Let me pray for us and then we'll close out. Father, we thank you for, for even the hard truths of your word the reality that we are sinners, separated from relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage not to be a people who presume, not to be a people who justify and defend our sin, but instead be a people who acknowledge it, confessing it, maybe even demonstrating it through baptism, but ultimately being a people who say, we need you, Jesus. That we're powerless to change and we need the power that comes from you and from you alone. Jesus, thank you for entering into those waters, not because you needed it, but because we did. Lord, I pray that we as a church, as your people, would in fact be a people made ready, a people prepared. We ask these things in Jesus' name.